Hostage Rescue is a very unique uh, challenge in that you're really putting the safety of another person ahead of your own. And you're, there are certain tactics that are just not appropriate in any other environment other than hostage rescue. In both missions, every single helicopter got a bullet strike. All of our helicopters had holes in them. But there's only so many times you're going to get shot at off the skids of a helicopter before you start shooting first and asking questions second. You know, she was a little girl in war, just like everybody on Earth. You know, most Iraqis are decent human beings. There's a young woman that's hurt and they're trying their best to help her. We're not going to back up and go, oh, it's too much. We're not in the old college try business. We're going to win. I'm Ian Allen, and this is Steel Man Strongman. On March 23rd, 2003, three days into the Iraq War, the 507th Maintenance Company was ambushed in Nazaria. Eleven soldiers were killed and seven were captured. Because the American forces were just outside Nazaria, the Iraqi paramilitary unit that captured them, the Fedayeen, moved the Americans to Samarra, 300 miles north. However, one POW was too badly injured to move and was left behind in a hospital in the city. This was PFC Jessica Lynch. Days after her capture, an Iraqi man walked into a Marine checkpoint and said that an American was being treated in the hospital. Aaron Baldwin, a SEAL with Dev Group at the time, was part of the team that confirmed she was there. This is impressive. Because the Americans did not yet hold the city, and the hospital was known to be a Fedeen headquarters, a large force of Marines, SEALs, soldiers, and airmen was organized to seize the surrounding area in the hospital. Aaron led the extraction group that made entry into the hospital and got her out. But months later, Aaron would be called before Congress to swear under oath that the operation had not been staged. With this year being the 20th anniversary of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and this month being the anniversary of 9-11, I wanted to talk to Aaron about his memories of the early days after 9-11 and how all this happened. Aaron, it's uh, exciting to finally be doing a podcast after so long talking about it. We um, should start by telling everybody who we are because our backgrounds are relevant to this particular thing and then we'll get into what we're doing here. But um, my name's Ian and I was relevant to this discussion, a Marine and CIA paramilitary officer and you, Aaron, were... I was a Navy SEAL at Dev Group, uh, retired there as a squadron master chief, and then I got into uh, sort of cyber technology and its applications in the modern battlefield, and that's how we met, as a fact. Yeah, so t- tell me, t- talk about that story really quick, because it is it is apropos of how we think and apply our thoughts, where we're going here in this conversation, which I'll introduce in a second. Yeah, I think we, I, think we, uh, I guess hit it off just because you were at the time, as I recall, uh, the head of training uh, for Ground Branch. And I had done a couple of courses, a digital tradecraft type courses for your guys. You'd heard about it. I think it got some pretty good feedback originally. And uh, you came out to look at the course and you just happened to walk in on a day where I'm talking about, and I'm, I was pretty sensitive at the time because I'm a, at the, you know, I'm a contractor now when I am not your tactics guy. Like I have an opinion but when I go over these things, I'm really explicit about the fact that all tactics have a downside. They all have a cost. And I was going on and on about that. And I said, you know, a tactic that has no downside is called a procedure. And for some reason, you went, oh, <laughs> you wrote that down like that matter. That and then down. we ended up, yeah, right? that's a good point. What is a tactic, a technique, and a procedure? What's the difference? I've always wondered. <laughs> and uh, so that was my own definition, which just led to us having a conversation. And I think it, it turned out we were both, you know, all in, you know, special operations type people, but also had an intellectual bent, not dilettantes, not academics, not, you know, externally interested, but just people that are actually involved at the tree level, as I would call it, you know, with the nuts and bolts, but were uh, observers by nature and had an intellectual bent. And that led to our friendship over the last next couple of decades or whatever. You know, we've had a lot of conversations over the years that I always thought would make an interesting podcast. And then when I found myself in charge of a media company, uh, one of the, the maybe the first thing I wanted to do was try to capture some of those. Because you're right, it is that a little bit of a, I don't know if warrior poet mindset is the way to put it. But one who notices in in the in the experience of war and combat, all of this, these strange experiences, these, these, these many moments of incongruous incongruity or beauty or terror, whatever it is, you kind of tie these to bigger patterns you see. And, 
and make interesting observations. And so one reason I wanted to, to talk, you know, the week after September 11th and, and, and particularly us and how it relates to the company is one thing. The first time I remember really hearing about or thinking about misinformation and disinformation and remember hearing Congress talk about it was mm -hmm. after the Jessica Lynch raid in 2003, which we're going to talk about later. It is interesting how far away from it we are now, how, how it, there's this, I mean, it's natural that we sort of forget what happened, but it seems that these conspiracies that maybe bubble under the surface are rising further up as we get farther away. And I, that's another thing I want to talk through a little bit. But then also your personal experience is, is, a, is a really interesting metaphor for the country's experience going to, because you went to Afghanistan first and then picked up and then went to Iraq. And I want to talk about, talk about those three things. So it's sort of the two insights into misinformation that we're dealing with now and how that happens and all the times that you and I have been in, a, in the room for something that we then see become a narrative somewhere else and, right. and quite distant from what we remember. Or what we experience. Right. You know, we discuss a lot in my work, the difference between the forest level and the tree level. And you need to have both or both important. I'm a, I am a for sure tree level guy. I, I was a tree level guy, you know, my entire career. And the insights that you have there are very visceral. They're not s social patterns or cultural, you know, the wave of cultural conflict over the centuries. It's just like, what's really happening here in my face? And it's, I I knew we were going to probably talk about some of these things. And I was really reflecting on like the ones that often I feel like with a conspiracy theory, like you can kind of see what they're, what they're getting out of it. What, what is, how is that serving the people that are, that have that conspiracy theory? And there's others. And in, in the case of Jessica Lynch in particular that we're going to talk about, I really never, and I still don't understand why that happened. I don't understand who was served or what the what the the positive outcome of trying to do that even was. I'm still confused about that all the years later. You went to Afghanistan early on, and then you went to Iraq. And how you personally experienced that, I think, is a really interesting metaphor for how the how the how the country did. Like, what was it like for you? Because you were there in 2002, long before I was there. What did that what did that feel like? Yeah, so I was uh, my squadron went in uh, uh, actually third. So there was the, a group went in. There was an operation called Anaconda, which was an attempt to, to uh, capture Bin Laden. It's been, I think, fairly well documented. Following that, there was the activities involved with getting Karzai uh, safe and then and hopefully become president. And then we had got in there. So when, when I showed up, this is early, or I guess mid two thousand two. The Northern Alliance had got the upper hand, thanks to, in no small part, to um, U.S. air power. Uh, things were reasonably stable, to be honest, I think. And we were trying to figure out what to do. In retrospect, I, if I just stop for a minute as we go forward, one of the things I thought was really interesting when we were, uh, you know, trying to figure out where bin Laden was now, basically. And we were, uh, we were chasing down rumors, certainly. Uh, to some extent, and you end up interacting with these people. You know, you we think he's in this area. We go sort of take down that area. Um, at the time, I think it was their default SOP. I mean, their standard operating procedures. You hear helicopters, all adult males just leave. The the the, the, the you, you know they saw you come. They're not there to fight about anything. These were not Taliban guys. These are not Al Qaeda guys. The the general rule, and I'm not sure if it even comes from the blood feud thing, but if. A, a small hamlet is being sort of invaded. Everybody, every male, 14 and older, just runs and, and goes up into the mountains. If something bad happens, maybe they come back, but they mostly just stood up there. And during that time, one of the interesting things I remember saying to somebody, like, man, these guys are conspiracy prone. Like, they really had a lot of ideas about what was going on that were not based in reality. There was one where later on, as I'm skipping, but I remember it just going, how crazy is that that they – were upset and they had accused the U.S. forces of dropping feral cats into their neighborhoods or into their, you know, farmlands. And these cats were killing people. And there were two or three eyewitnesses that had seen the cats. They had tried to capture one of the cats. They definitely had killed one, they think, but it got away. You know, somebody got the body. And I remember going like, like, where is that coming from? You know, and then later, you know, we find ourselves immersed in it. But when we first started an OEF, um, and I think this is 
you know, it's been said many places before, but there uh, Operation was Enduring Freedom, Afghanistan. An Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Uh, once you got out of the big cities outside of, you know, uh, Kabul and J- Jalalabad or, and um, Kandahar, and you're up in the, uh, like in the Hindu Kush, up in the, uh, up in the mountainous area, they all assumed we were Russians, you know, and we had figured out to carry these little cards. Uh, they were like a sheet that had a picture of their, an airplane hitting uh, the World Trade Center, and it was all just in graphics, not with um, with words, but just to try to get the idea. And once we were telling them, like, hey, we're not here for you. This had nothing to do with Afghanistan. In fact, I remember saying to somebody, like, like uh, you guys used to be, the Mujahideen were like heroes in some of our movies in the, in the 90s, like Rambo 3 was about the Mujahideen. Like, you know, we were actually, I don't think I said feelings, but it's like, we kind of taken it hard that you're harboring these guys that are clearly our enemies and we thought we were friends but you're harboring our enemies uh, and we wish you wouldn't do that and that's what we're doing here and they really were like oh like why didn't you explain that somebody should explain that like this is just a blood feud we totally get that and we don't like these herbs anyway like you can have them i mean those guys the hamlets maybe didn't know where they were but or maybe they didn't they didn't tell us but in general they were like we have no issue with you taking those guys that there's there's nothing about that the other thing i mean the main piece that i do recall and as it progressed throughout the years is during those first couple of deployments in thousand in 2002 there was this the the vibe or whatever there was a real sense that we were actually defending american freedom that's a term that's used a lot I think it's used a little loosely. I don't take anything from what the military does, but there's a place where you're like, are we really? In this case, it really felt like there's Al-Qaeda, there's us in this line, and there's the United States, and you are not getting by us. Like, we were there, like, actually fighting for liberty, actually trying to track down these motherfuckers that did something that was just not going to pass. And in, in that sense, it felt, you know, it was a very positive experience. It, it didn't feel like later in the world where war is war, war is hell. That's your job. You go and do it. But in that case, we were really fighting directly against these guys that had attacked our physical country, which was different. So, yeah. Do, what, do you, what do you have recollections of that time or what you thought? Well, was I mean, I, what I remember... I just remember a lot of this. I wasn't there to, for for a few years, but I remember all the guys I worked for were all there in '01 and '02, and I mean it was very similar about the Taliban versus Al Qaeda. I mean we the the first, I think everybody was very conscious that you know Al Qaeda attacked us. Al Qaeda, not the Taliban. If we make this war about the Taliban, then it's going to be a completely different outcome. And there were just some decisions made early on that ended up strategic decisions. I mean, those are policy decisions out of Washington. And that's not this way beyond our scope here. But there is, I think it's worth acknowledging there was a decision made in, you know, 2002, the Bonn Conference to rebuild Afghanistan and treat the root causes of what were believed to be the root causes of terrorism, which is hugely debatable, and to do nation building. And of course, 23 years later, every, I think that's been largely forgotten. And that certainly wasn't the mission the last several years. The last several years was just to try to keep stasis and keep, you know, keep Al-Qaeda from returning. Yeah, some lessons are hard. Uh, and it is, I, I think it's important to, you know, caveat every couple of seconds. No money morning quarterbacking, no in yeah. hindsight, what the obvious thing was. It is true, though, very explicitly, JSOC was like, we are in the early deployments up, up through at least the middle or end of 2002. We are uninterested in Taliban. It is Al Qaeda. And we, there's the list. These are the, these, you know, there was 11 guys, these top two guys, followed by these five guys, followed by these six guys. If that's, if they're not on that list, we don't care. That's not none of our not none of our business, but that is not our mission. That was very very explicitly made. Now, of course, that's not what happened later on, but at the time that was what happened. We were uninterested in the Taliban, and for whatever their strength were, I don't think we had any that I recall in that 2002 any conflicts directly with them. There were things that happened, and they're hard to tell why, 
you know, particularly in an environment, especially up in the mountainous regions of Afghanistan, where there are sort of pogrom, there are these feuds that go back and forth. If you're sneaking up on a house, they're going to start shooting at you because that's what they do anyway. <laughs> you know, that's just how it goes. If you if you're too loud, we were explicitly it's we're after Bin Laden and we're after his key facilitators and their infrastructure. We're not interested in Afghanistan. We're not interested in rebuilding Afghanistan. We're not interested at all in the Taliban other than if they are facilitating Al Qaeda, which for the most part, I think, or I mean, and that's a forest question and maybe can never be truly answered, but that would, did not seem like that was the issue at all back then. One of the things that I really remember that it's, I mean, it, it, which is, as you said, it's not to Monday morning quarterback or say it was simple or clear. It was very, con, very confused for sure. Uh, in many ways, but one story that I remember clearly was a good friend of mine was in Eastern Afghanistan, 01 and 02. And what was that cartoon with like the sheepdog and the wolf and they would like clock in and clock out? Do you remember that? I have yeah, to, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I remember school. Yeah. My friend was, was talking to this. Again, the tribes, the tribes, there's the tribes of Afghanistan, the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and they're some overlap me, but they're generally three separate things. I have to caveat a million things. The Taliban are very deeply rooted among many of the Pashtun tribes, so I'm not, I'm oversimplifying to make a point wildly. But um, he said that the one particular tribe in the area, he would meet with tribal leaders during the day to try to identify, you know, where the Al Qaeda fighters were, where bin Laden was. And then at night, some elements of the tribes would, would attack them. So they have these, you know, these long gunfights through the night, get up in the morning. It's like they clock back in again where they're negotiating and they'd all go out and have tea and talk about their plans to get Al Qaeda. And then the nighttime would keep. So it was, it was certainly uh, challenging. There was certainly a sense that Iraq was going to happen at some point. I think we got back, I think we were home for six weeks or so. And we got redeployed to Iraq and that really changed the tenor of things. It really, it felt much more like my trade is war. That's where I'm being sent. We're going to go prosecute this thing. There was not, I don't think for any of us, any sense that this was an imperative. I mean, you're in the military. It's none of your business who the war is with. That's not your job. Your job is to go. That's one of the sacrifices you make as a member of the military. It's not up to you who's good and bad. It's up to your government, and they picked. And they picked Iraq, and the sense, it really changed from this one's for the Gipper or the old red and white and blue to strap it on, this is our job, let's go, you know. And that continued. I think that came again into Afghanistan eventually. Uh, I think I've mentioned to you there was a shirt one of the squadrons had this is now maybe seven, eight years down the road. But I remember going, oh, really reflecting on, man, that's different. It, it, the shirt said, uh, uh, it's tribe versus tribe will be the visiting team. How much of yeah. that is because you have the same people going to war over? I mean, is this ever, I don't think this has been the case ever, where you've had this such a small group of people going to war over and over and over and over it, for years. I think it made a big difference. You know, who, who, who's to say exactly? But there's only so many times you're going to get shot at off the skids of a helicopter before you start shooting first and asking questions second. You know, that that's a real thing. We knew that. We did. There was some attempt early on to recognize this is probably going to be a long haul. Don't burn out your racehorse on the first lap. It's really hard not to do that. I think it also coincided to some degree with the, not popularity isn't the word, but just the the term Navy SEAL. Like, you know, as an example, just as an aside, when I went to BUDS in the early 80s, right about half of my BUDS class, which is SEAL training, had heard of a Navy SEAL before they joined the Navy. <laughs> that's right right around half had never heard. They Oh, that seems like a good thing. They volunteered to go to BUDS. <laughs> this is very different. So I think that was coming out. Um, it took a giant leap after uh, uh, the Alabama Mersk, and then, of course, another gigantic one after Abbottabad. I think the point you're, or the question you were asking is, what what what, what happened with Iraq? Iraq, first of all, it doubled the work. 
So we really were going to Afghanistan, coming back, retooling, going to Iraq, coming back, retooling, going to Afghanistan, coming back, retooling, going to and all the squadrons were doing that. And so does that have a does that have an impact um on a unit like ours? And the answer is yes. I mean it it certainly does. That's that's I guess one man's opinion, but it, de- it definitely did. And you could see it in the guys, particularly when our primary mission is hostage rescue. Hostage rescue is a very unique uh, challenge in that you're really putting the safety of another person ahead of your own. And you're, there are certain tactics that are just not appropriate in any other environment other than hostage rescue. And you're ready to do those things. So you're, you're, you know, you are going to be really care- you Every shot has to be perfect. You don't just spray the bushes because somebody's moving in there. That's just anathema to what the mission is. But later down the road, it's not wise not to do that. You need to start, you need to do that in general warfare. And most of what we did in Afghanistan were direct action missions, meaning there's a target, go smash that target. It's jumping forward a little bit, but can you talk about the Jessica Lynch rescue? And then I'm going to talk about the aftermath, but walk us through what happened in that operation. Yeah, okay. Just for context, it happened very early in the the second Iraq war. So that's OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? As opposed to Desert Storm. So this is 2003. It's early 2003. I'm thinking probably March. End of March is the when the war kicks off. First week in April is when that that uh, the Jessica Lynch rescue took place. So on the build up to it, I think the general idea was. The Iraqis hate Saddam. They're mostly Shiites. There's going to be a big fight when we get to Baghdad. It's going to be World War II style street fighting and urban combat. And it's probably going to be a slog and deaths by the millions. But getting, we're probably going to roll in there and they're going to go, it's cool. During Desert Storm, it was very quick. We didn't, they didn't want to fight. That's not what actually happened. So there was uh, immediately uh, contact on all fronts. For our squadron, which was the, the tier one squadron for the opening uh, phase of the Iraq invasion, uh, we had uh, a series of pre-planned objectives that were either in support um, of the shock and awe campaign, which was you know one of the strategic set pieces, which is to say we can be anywhere doing anything at any time, you're not safe. Um, or it was uh, smoking gun stuff, looking for evidence of WMDs were the, the, the original missions that we hit. So that's where we were. Um, we had done, I, as I recall, two missions, both of which were highly kinetic, meaning which is a euphemism for there was a lot of gunfire and lots of, they were, they were very violent. So we knew, uh, and they were deep behind enemy lines too. So we were going to random places. When we got there, it was a fight. It was on. We were preparing for uh, a mission that was in support of the shock and awe campaign. And sort of importantly, it, it did have presidential oversight, not that he was in charge of it, but he was being briefed on did, what has happened. And during his daily brief, like we've executed this one, we've done this, this you know phase has been reached or whatever. So this mission we were going to do, it was an attack on one of Saddam's summer palaces. We were getting ready to do that. Uh, and uh, when that happened, uh, there was an army convoy, and I think I was not there, so I'm just telling you, I, probably everybody knows, but this is what I heard at the time. Um, I think it's the 507th. This is a you know mechanized infantry battalion, and they're supporting uh, elements. We're going through a town called Nazaria. It's down south. There was a big dust storm. Some group got separated to some extent. There was an ambush. There was a big fire. Well, there was an ambush. There was a big firefight. And in the course of that firefight, there were uh some americans were captured there was a video that was released very quickly by the iraqis that had these six individuals with their names they made a statement to the camera that was shown on tv and then by the way that tape continued for some time and it showed uh, it was fairly gruesome uh there you know uh, dead americans that were mostly face up they could be identified including one that was, looked like he was executed so that ha- there was this big fight. This comes out, and although we had these pre-planned stakes that we were uh, churning through, we had uh, 
two conditions in which we would stop that and do something else. One was if Saddam had used weapons of mass destruction in the first part of the war, that would have led to a sequence of events that I'm glad never happened. The other was if there was a, a hostage situation. That was it was our a corollary, but become primary duty if that was to occur. So when that tape was released, immediately we stopped what we were doing. Uh, the you know battle group commander or whatever it was sent a sent a, a group down towards Nazaria where the Marines, the U.S. Marines, had secured an airfield down there called Talil and were um, had surrounded the city, although they didn't have control of the inside of the city which was the nearest place to where the attack had taken place. So we thought maybe they're there if, as a general rule, if you can get them, get them immediately. Even I think the, 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 the planners were still on their way down there when we got for, for, through technical means, got very clear evidence that the hostages had been moved. They were probably in or almost in Baghdad. It, it's not reasonable to try to cap to it would be more dangerous to try to recover them in Baghdad unless they had really perfect intelligence than to get them when we got there I wasn't on that particular uh, mission but they all came back we reconstituted and began to plan for this next shock and awe mission the next evening so I guess we're about to launch the it would be you know it's the morning of the uh, of the next day um there is a walk-in source some guy walks into a, a marine checkpoint and he says uh, that his wife works at this hospital, that he had, was there visiting her for some reason. He saw a young American girl there um, that was in the hospital, in a hospital bed, not in prison, um, but that a guard had slapped her with the back of his hand, which is offensive in Islam and I think should probably be offensive anywhere. Um, and he took exception to that and he wanted to let the Americans know that she was there. And her name, he heard, was Jessica. By this time, during the initial planning, you know, there were these six known captured people that were in the video. There were known KIAs from the unit, um, from their own reporting and from the video. And then there were a set of missing that they just didn't have definitive answers on where that person was, Re you know, reconstituting and mustering, getting a head count of everybody in this in the combat. It sounds like pretty quick to do, but it's it's pretty hard. Uh, so there were people that were we were on this list of unknown. One of them was a, a private name or a private first class, I guess, named Jessica Lynch. So that was enough um, to reinvestigate the mission that was happening that we were going to be doing. Now was taking full, you know, the, it was the primary effort. Myself and three other people flew down in a helicopter to Toledo. Uh, to meet with the Marines and to try to find the um, the uh, handler of the source that had walked in, the guy that was assigned to be his, you know, chaperone slash interrogator handler. I think that's probably a pretty normal word, right? We found him, and also, by the way, to assess what the situation was in Nazaria, and it was it was not super stable. It was you, you could not just move around and go door to door and figure out what was going on. The Marines were on the outskirts of it. They had gotten in a pretty significant firefight a few days before that, and they were pissed. They were not in a good mood. But the city itself was not controlled, if that makes sense. So we would have to fight our way in, fight our way out. The agency handler had assessed the source, I think, you know, not to be technical. He had assessed him as like, he's probably not bullshitting me, is basically what his assessment was. Um, we called back and said, hey, they got uh, the guy thinks it's probably legit walk in. It, it, it doesn't he didn't you know, his read was not that the guy was lying or there to, you know, for the, the reward or anything. And the response from command, which I understand was, hey, we got to do this mission. That's not enough. We're going to need proof of life. Like we got to have better than some guy said. So uh, and we're going to come get you tomorrow morning. Okay, so we continue to talk to the guy. We, we, we were just brainstorming how to how are we going to get proof of life? Can we send the guy back in? Can he ask? Is there somebody else? What if three other people corrupt? Could his wife come in and and you know do a sketch? Or we were just coming up. And in one of these things, it's you know it's just these moments of serendipity. There was an SF guy, a Green Beret, that one of uh, the four of us knew. I didn't know him, but one of the guys knew him. He's dragging this case, like a pelican case, sort of through the gravel, just looking, you know, it's hot as hell. Uh, 
And somebody's like, hey, what are you up to? He's like, man, I'm trying to find some place to store these pinhole cameras I got. Like he had all this technical surveillance equipment in his box. I just can't figure out a place to put them. We were like, really? And uh, like, let's talk. And we figured, and so the plan came out. We're going to try to, we're, we're not going to do it. We're going to, the SF guys um, and this agency guy are going to create a, some kind of concealment device, try to give it to this guy. The plan is, this is, you know, late afternoon. We're going to, you know, they're going to go off. They have a safe house. They're going to build this thing, get it to the guy. We're going to tell this guy to go in to visit his wife again and see if you can walk by and get a picture and get some kind of video over. And we had plans, by the way, of the, just because it does kind of matter. We did have probably from the agency uh, blueprints of the hospital. And so when we were talking um, to the handler, we were like, really, really, really try to explain to him to go through this particular door, enter through this door when he's got the bag. If he can't, then, you know, move to this left door, always move south around the building. Like, it, we, we have to know which door he came through, and we have to be positive because to see where he's going in the building, if that makes sense. They said, okay. He took off um, that afternoon. It's getting light. He was trying to meet that guy that evening. We're thinking, man, if he can get in, get out, he'll be back. And maybe we'll, you know, we'll know. Uh, the night passed, you know, got some chow. We're just talking about the situation. We're talking to the Marines about the area they were in. That's how we, you know, and I just doing normal sort of, you know, environmentals about where we are as to what's going on. Um, he didn't show up. No, nobody came back. We fell asleep. Um, I remember woke up a couple of times going, man, he's still not here. This sucks. I guess I, I, like my feeling was that, but who cares? But our sense was she's there, if that makes sense, you know. But and also, if we don't have proof of life, we're not going to go. Probably about six in the morning, we're we're starting to make comms. Hey, they're going to launch. Uh, I think at one thirty was going to come and get us this time. Talking about that, he shows up and he has the bag. He's like, I think we got it. We take out the, you know, get the camera out. We start going through the footage. And if you, this is twenty years ago, and it's amazing to be thinking about it because we're like sort of fast forwarding as fast as we can walking through the thing and he has a, he swings by briefly by this door the bag does you know there's a guard on the outside looks kind of creepy there's a guard on the inside and you can see in the back there's this little blonde girl in a bed this is black and white somewhat grainy video but clearly a blonde hair smallish caucasian woman is in this bed and he went by and we're like that's it we i'm laughing now because Today it would be like screenshot text, but it was actually fairly It took us a while. Like, how are we going to grab this one image? We got it. And how do, what do you send it over? Like there, we had, you know, rudimentary tools to do this in the field really quickly because, because they're spinning ready to come. We're like, hold on, we're sending you a picture. And they said, okay, we sent it, you know, probably 30 minutes later, they were like, we're coming, you know, planes are coming, but they're going to have the boys on them. So get ready for that. So about half of us started, you know, doing the admin and logistics was a giant part of all warfare. It doesn't make the movies all that much. Like, where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to store shit? Where do the helicopters go? All that stuff. And then me and one other guy spent, we just watched this video for hours as they were coming in that afternoon, trying to figure out exactly where she was. So we did figure out he went through this particular door and then we would just go, he's walk, walk, walk. Okay. He's in a stairwell. Okay. that he, He's definitely on the second floor. Okay. Now he's on the third floor. Okay, he's out. That's the definitely the fourth. We just redo it. We did it. We got it. He's a fourth floor. He walked. That's the fourth room on the right or fourth room. I can't remember exactly, but we looked through it many. I think it was the fourth room on the right. There she is. Um, in that video that we had watched numerous times, you could, as he's walking through the hospital, um, you see uh, there are a couple of dozen. Iraqi military and a couple of dozen like Fedahin looking guys, which are their paramilitary that work for one of uh, Saddam's sons, basically. They're, you know, paramilitary thug types. Uh, I think we counted something like 47 clearly armed military or, or military age males that are not, you know, visiting their sick people. This is, by the way, the, this is a hospital, it's a functioning hospital in a war zone. It was packed to the rafters with people. But you could tell that's a family, that's a mother and father waiting. And there's these guys standing there, whether they were armed or not. And I, we did make a list of definitely armed up, not definitely armed, but looks like trouble sort of thing. 
I think we got 47 in the camera. The guy, when he came out, said to the uh, handler, they're using, the, the Iraqis are using the basement as a C2 element, uh, a C2 area, a command and control area, the basement of the hospital, and there's about 100 people in there. It makes rational sense to do that, assuming you're fighting a moral enemy. We're not going to bomb a nine-story hospital to get to the basement. So it's a pretty smart thing to do. And that made sense. So our estimation was something like 150 armed people in the building spread out throughout, mostly on the first and second floor, but that we'd found there were around everywhere, plus maybe 100 in the basement where they were doing their planning and stuff. The two missions we had done prior to that, on, in both missions, every single helicopter got a bullet strike. All of our helicopters had holes in them. And now we're only on day five. So we know they're not they're not joking around. They know we know they can't hit them, not with missiles, this is small arms. We've taken some casualties. We are right on the Talil, the Air Force base is like a or you know, the Iraqi base is probably like a nine or eight minute flight. It almost seemed like a training mission, like you do just iterative training when you're on a base, like take off, hit the thing, come back. It was just like get up and go. And we got 150 people uh, on the target. We know she's on the fourth floor of a nine-story building, which is not ideal. It's actually close to worst case because you can't come in on the roof. It's five floors to get down or it's four floors to get up. Also, we're going to be flying straight through the city, which is not contained. In other words, it, it was not there was no suppression of enemy fire there. So because of that, we had about two-thirds of our forces were in this helicopter package that were going to do this, the primary assault. Uh, a third of them and a large contingent of rangers and some marines, I believe, driving vehicles uh, and clearing a path. We're going to make a ground assault that was going to try to time it so we could get about about at the same time. The ground support was primarily to block the garage exit external to the garage and to enter in that direction. Or if we were shot down on the way in to become the primary rescue force. Right. There was that second. It's a nine-story building in the middle of a battle space. The Marines were like, that's a handy thing to have. Once that mission is over, we want to take over that building. That makes perfect sense, too. Uh, in, the, in reality, that is a very dangerous mission. When two armed forces, even if they're friendly, are approaching each other, that's very, very dangerous. So, we're gonna, so we had a plan to, once we got her out, we're going to try to clear up to this particular space, drop some markers back up, then you guys are going to come and we're going to slowly do this handoff and then we'll get out of there. That kind of makes sense, which caused, and it's one of the points that comes up later, 400 and something total forces were involved in this mission. The reason for that is hostage rescue requires offense in depth, not just defense, but offense in depth. That means we're going to do this. If we get shot down, these guys are going to go. If this is blocked, they're going to come in through here. If that happens, we're, we're just going to continuously add things to do um, until we win. Right. Because we're not going to back up and go, oh, it's too much. So there were several hundred people involved. And that's true. And that's and I just stated the reasons for that. Part of the plan also was that the Marines that were there were going to move up the river a little bit and conduct uh, an attack on a known Iraqi holding a strong point there. Try to start a battle to try to draw forces away from the uh, hospital. If that's if, if they would take the bait, they would move up. OK. The Marines started moving up in the middle of the afternoon. I think we launched something like nine or 10 at night local, you know, middle of the night. They started moving up in the afternoon. We didn't hear about it at that time, but later we uh, did find out that there was a walk-in, another walk-in source that had said something along the lines, I hear they're going to kill the American at the hospital. I don't know what would have happened if we had heard that at that moment. We would have put it in a very tough position, but I think we probably would have held off anyway and but i don't know anyway they move up uh and as it turns out when they saw that the people in the hospital the force in the hospital must took it as like oh the marines are going to come in they're going to attack now and they unasked and they bailed out of the hospital okay that's what actually happened from our perspective what happened was we're spinning on the deck uh, you can see some tracer fire is, start, uh, is up the river. It's uh, several miles up. They ricochet. We can see that. I actually remember thinking to myself, I hope they don't shoot us down because we're coming. It's pretty contained where the firefighter is going. And we're going to try to come in on this line over in here. And you can just watch these ricochets crossing over. 
Our force was composed of three these small helicopters called MH6s and three Blackhawks. The MH the MH6s can hold, you know, generally something like four people. So we got 12 guys coming in really quick on the ground. A Hawk's going to go to the roof for overwatch, uh, you know, drop troops on the roof and get out. Those are our, the, the snipers and overwatch guys are going to try to defend the building as we're maneuvering on it. And there's two more Hawks of troops coming in. Our plan, our intention was that we were going to have in the first mo- opening moments of that battle, there were going to be 12 guys entering a building that had 150 armed fighters in it. And that was our plan. We accepted that risk. It, there was some tension. I think I had said to you before that I, I was in one of the Hawks. I wasn't, you know, I was senior, pretty senior dude at the time. And um, I wasn't the in charge of the squadron, but I was a kind of a senior guy. And my job was the actual extraction group for Jessica, which was composed of me, an Air Force a pararescue guy, an EOD guy in case she was booby trapped and an army doctor from the Rangers that the, the four of us were going to be the guys that, you know, that did the assessment, moved her along and passed her off, you know, with chain of custody and all that stuff. The guy I'm with uh, in the back, we're spinning, getting ready to go. And there's this thing that you do uh, often in a helicopter in a vehicle, like when you're when they're calling like one minute out, you start doing this thing like this. If you, I don't know if we're on TV, but like you're rocked back and forth a little bit. You're just like, I'm in the, I'm in the zone. I'm just sort of inducting into, I'm about, it's about to be game on. It's very normal. It's like, it's probably very healthy. We're sitting in the helicopter. I'm looking around and one of my, one of the guys is doing it right. It's we're 20 minutes out probably from launching. And he's right here, man. And he's just got a lot of tension in him. And it's because we're about to fly and fight 150 dudes. The last two uh, missions we did, we got shot to hell. We did good, but. They didn't give up. We put it that way, and there were not 150 of them. And I remember looking over and saying, "Are you good, brother?" And he go, he put his, you know, we did this little fist bumpy thing. Yeah, he's like, "Fuck it, let's go get her." I'm like, "Right, okay." So we buckled up, we flew in there. Twelve guys get in. You know, I think we had four guys went to the, were held on the base, and they had M60s and a like like a, just a satchel of grenades to start throwing down the stairs if it went bad. And meanwhile, and the vehicles were rolling up on the outside. The timing went really, really well. Um, inside the building, it turned out they were gone. Uh, outside the building, they took a bunch of fire. The, the snipers and things were handling that from the outside. There was a firefight outside, but inside the building, there were just 900 panicked civilians there, either injured or with their families. They were dropping a guy per floor to, for each floor in the hospital just to hold it because because the deal is you've got to get to her immediately. Right, as fast as possible. We had seen in the tape there was a guard in front of her, so seconds really matter. So it was a four-flight sprint, went down to that door. She was not in there, and I, I was in the lobby on the bottom listening as the team was up there, as we're getting our gear together and trying to calm the crowd, which was going apeshit. But she wasn't in that room. It turned out she had been scheduled for surgery. They were. I rec- the guy said they were going to amputate her leg the next morning. I, get, I think she had been moved. She was still on the same floor. They had floors were not co-ed. So she, you know, we had had a plan. If she's not there, here's how we're going to sequentially start searching. Start with maybe we fucked it up and she's really on the fifth floor or the third floor, which I was like a nightmare but it, it, of mine at the time. But it, that's not what happened. I remember thinking that like, oh my God, did you screw that up? We didn't. She had been moved like you know, a couple across and a couple down to some pre-op area. They got her very quickly. You know, the, the call went out that we got her and she's safe. We launched up there. Uh, in the room was one person who was not a doctor. He was some kind of hospital administrator. She was not guarded. Um, she was uh, very upset. You know, there was a lot of commotion going on. Uh, the guys had... You know, they cleared it and then they immediately, as soon as we got her secure, those forces start having to, you know, expand our area of control on that floor. Uh, so we were in there. Um, I, You know, one of the things that really burned in my head is it's just the juxtaposition. She was, she, this is an army soldier who had volunteered to serve her country and that was rad. I mean, that was important. She was also a 19-year-old girl from West Virginia. She was a little girl in the middle of this giant war. And it, I remember really going like, whoa, what is happening here? In fact, she had uh, had sustained several injuries. She had been in a, 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 her vehicle had crashed, it turned out, and, and maybe had rolled. She had a broken arm. She had 
I think bilateral broken legs and her back was broken and she had a big uh, gash down her head where they had shaved part of her head and she had a big series of, con- uh, of stitches in her head. And when she started talking, my first thought was, is she uh, like, does she have some brain damage? Because she had such a small, she didn't, and I don't, and when I look at the tapes later, I can see why, but she had such a small voice that I thought, oh man, you know, is she damaged? Is she, does she have brain damage or something? Proceeded to, you know, get her out and get her undone. We, we took some fire from outside into the wall outside of her building. So we had to get her onto the ground pretty quick. And that's where we found out she had a broken back. Well, I guess she had told us before, but she, was not super happy. I mean, she was in a lot of pain. We got her, they cleared a path back, just just the path to get her out the door. The, the Black Hawk was on the deck waiting for her, brought her down there, got her onto the thing. Turned, the doctor stayed with her, and I I think just the doctor stayed with her, and we had two other, you know, um, a, a, little, a team of sort of like security guys that were from um, uh, the head shed sort of, uh, not part of the squadron, uh, went with her. They flew off. That was 17 minutes. So from first helicopter hitting the deck to her taking off was 17 minutes, which is pretty good. Um, and then, and then there's quite a bit of media that are going to the thing and flying, uh, you know, onto a one thirty, off to wherever. And then they handed her the flag and all this other stuff that had, that was not apparent to us at the time. Uh, then what we did is proceeded. We spent another about three or four hours on the target, um, trying to clear it in preparation for uh, the Marines to take over that building. In my case, I was, you know, one of my other jobs was the field interrogator, which does not mean the torturer or anything. It just means I'm eliciting information in, in, in a tactical environment. So I had the guy that was in the room, who was the guy that started all these rumors, as it turned out. Um, we had brought him down. There was a lot of stuff happening outside. So me and him were sit- sitting in an elevator shaft that didn't have an elevator in it, or it was, you know, it was just concrete on the bottom floor just for protection. I'm questioning the normal stuff that you might imagine. Are there more Americans? Are there booby traps? Where are the, Where is the enemy? What happened to these blah, 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 blah. He said, hey, all the uh, all the Fetahin, he called them at the time, they all left this afternoon. They just left. And I'm like, is there a, what's in the basement? He goes, it's a, bunch of radios and stuff they were down there for you know weeks sent some guys down there and there's video of that that was their planning center they had a lot of uh there were i don't remember if there were radios but there were antennas coming through the windows that they just cut and taking the radios there were big sand tables of the city plans and stuff and that got turned over to the marines as i was continuing though you know to question him as i was questioning him uh on the first floor, they're trying to clear out, you know, they're physically have to clear every door. We had gotten on a PA, I remember, and said, in, you know, in in Arabic, hey, get in your room. Do not come out. You're not in danger. You know, this is a military operation. Stay in place. Do not move. And so the halls were pretty empty. Um, but downstairs where we're going to have to, what you have to do is we're going to have to fight, you know, fight, clear this building up to a certain point where nobody can get around or, you know, so we can know that's clear, drop some lights to say, Hey, everything's clear between us then back up. So the Marines can come to it. I think that makes sense. Right. As they were doing that, if they came to a locked door, they would shotgun it because they got to get the, they can't leave anything unexposed. So I'm talking to the guy and every once in a while you hear, Oh, I am shotgun. He would jump like this. He would get really startled, which makes sense. And I said to him, Hey, don't worry. Those are shotguns are just shooting the locks off the doors are not hurting anybody. Don't worry. This is not a soldier, not nor a doctor, hospital administrator. He said, I told you there's no bad guys here anymore. They all left. Yeah. I'm like, I, I hear you, but just let me prove that for myself. I don't really know you or something like that. And he said, I have the master key if you want it. Down the line. I'm like, actually, I do want that. Give that thing to me. I took that thing, called somebody, came and got it, and the shot getting stopped. They started unlocking all the doors or whatever. So that was good. So anyway, things go, go on like this. And then we finally extract. The Marines come in. They take over the building. We fly away. And then we go on. Uh, that night, the, you know, for the rest of the night, uh, we all just went to sleep and, you know, cleaned our guns and our equipment, 
got some chow, went to sleep, and we went and did that that mission we were planning the next day anyway, and went on with the war. I do remember the CG, the commanding general of uh, JSOC came in uh, to talk to us, and one, the, the things he said was one was that mission really met, that was the biggest morale boost to the troops I could have ever imagined. Like everybody is just stoked. Everybody's like, yay for us. And the, I think the reason was this is the, the, the elite military unit in theater right now stopped what they were doing and put a hundred percent of their attention into rescuing a private first class army girl, if that makes sense. And that was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we do shit around here. So they were fired up. Um, he also said, good job. And he said, uh, uh, you know, foreshadowing, nobody write a book. I remember he said that, which was good. No, I don't think anybody did. But at the time, it was a really big deal. And it, we felt good about it. And let me back up to one other thing, because it does matter. And I don't I, I don't know if it ever got covered. While I'm talking to him, where, are there any other Americans here? Are there anybody that re, that's being held? Are there any blah, blah, blah? We had automatically, the Rangers had gone down to the morgue, which is in the hospital, to look through the bodies. They actually did take one out that just was very fair-skinned. Turned out he was an Iraqi and he was returned. But while I'm talking to him, I said, you know, where are the other Americans or are there any other Americans? Because there's a still list of missing people. He said, um, there, she was the only one that was alive. And by the way, he really liked her, which I think is true. You know, he I, he used a term like only that sweet girl is the only one that is alive. Um, there were nine other Americans uh, that were killed. Uh, some were killed in the ambush and at least one was executed in the hospital. They're buried just outside the hospital gate in shallow graves out there. I said, oh, I called up to the roof and said, hey, what do you see on the northwest corner? And he said, there's like some piles of dirt or something. I said, how many? He said, nine. Okay. Well, told the Rangers, and I'm, uh, uh, this is the desert, by the way, and it's hot as hell. And they went out there with their bare hands, dug those bodies up, wrapped them in ponchos, and got them all back to their families. Okay. Which uh, I, I don't know why that. It was so poignant to me, but it mattered. Um, and I was very proud of the guys for that. I was proud of our team. I was proud of the Rangers for doing that because that's hard. I was proud of the mission to get those people in. I was proud that we all, assuming we were going, a good 10% of us assumed we weren't going to make it, I would guess. And everybody went. You know, it gets, uh, there's this idea in the military that, uh, you know, every orders are orders. And the special operations, it, even the mission is voluntary in the end. You can always say you're backwards. You can always flip out. We're not conscripts. You got to have your A game. And if you don't have it, you can back out. And nobody did. I didn't think anybody would. But, and nobody did. The other thing was there were 900 people in that building. And none of them got shot. You know? So it was like, I don't count. You know, us getting hurt, that's a mishap. I don't count the enemy getting shot as a mishap, obviously, but shooting somebody that doesn't deserve it is also a mishap. That would not be mission success, and that'd never happen, and that's incredibly, incredibly hard to do in a war. If you think you at at the speed of combat, entering to a building and looking and deciding who's going to get shot while they're all moving and screaming and making the right decision 100% of the time in that building is was pretty impressive as well. That being said, we finished that, you know, Iraq happened. We re we returned, uh, you know, redeployed home a couple days after uh, President Bush landed on the aircraft carrier and said, mission complete or whatever. So, like, okay, cool. And we we flew home. There was this whole, there's the other things that, you know, weren't part of this story that day, but, well, part of this story, but not part of the mission was, you know, Shoshana Johnson. There were, there were so many firsts. Shoshana Johnson was the first black woman taken POW. She was rescued by the Marines two weeks later. And then, uh, Lori, I know you know the, the story of the first Native American female who was killed in serving in the U.S. Army died in that ambush also. You sure did. That, that, this is really only half the story, almost. So what happened when you guys got back? So we got back uh, to the States. 
very warm welcome. Everybody was, you know, excited. And I do remember feeling like, you know, it's not an action, you know, action movies require a lot of violence on the target. It's not what happened. You know, the guys bugged out a couple hours before we got there, you know, lucky for us or maybe lucky for them. You know, I don't know. But we were very proud of that uh, mission. And then uh, I had heard somebody said something along the lines of somebody said, uh, you guys use blanks on the target. So who's somebody you, you heard that? In I don't know. I mean, I'm saying, oh, there's something in the news about maybe the whole thing was staged and that you had used blanks or something like that. And I was like, what the fuck? That's stupid. And it turned out there was a series of things, I think, and I, some of this I know for sure, uh, because I was there talking to the guy that started it. But I think even with Jessica, so in the, to back up during the ambush, there was a SIGINT intercept. In other words, there was a radio call from the Iraqis that was intercepted by the Americans that was translated something like, there was a blonde American she-devil who killed three of our troops or something along those lines. That's how it was translated. That was taken and ran with, with the PR world, which is like, it's probably Jessica. She was fighting to the last minute. She's this, you know, this is going to be an amazing movie. You know, she was killed and they got her and she was wounded and blah, 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 blah. And that, that story got some legs, I guess. That, that's, that was the genesis of the story, I think, was that one comment. That had a couple of impacts. One is it caused Jessica Lynch, I think, I think I never, I've never met her. I, mean, I met her that day, but I've never met her or, or, or heard anything. But I do recall with the people talking about it that were with her in the hospital, that she was very offended by that. You know, she was like, I was in a car crash. My friend Lori was killed. And nobody's talking about that. You know, like I'm, you know, she was like, "This, that's not true. None of that. It's all. And she said, truthfully, of course, I was taken care of. I don't, she doesn't recall some of the events which she agrees about, um, about her initial interrogation and things like that. And there were lots of wild rumors. And I don't, I don't know what she remembers now or if she ever will, or maybe better if she doesn't, but whether she was mistreated in the early stages, which virtually all POWs are. But she said the hospital itself treated her very well. The guy that I had interrogated in the elevator had said he had actually given her a, a unit of blood that she needed. You know, she was a little girl in war, just like everybody on earth. You know, most Iraqis are decent human beings. There's a young woman that's hurt and they're trying their best to help her. Also came out, which I thought was just ironic as hell. U.S. intelligence sources had uh, stated that the enemy was no longer in the building. Right. That's the which maybe somebody did. And I agree that that happened. There's no such thing as U.S. intelligence forces. There's thousands and thousands of people with millions of opinions and all sorts of shit coming and going. The same intelligence forces that told you that there was a bunch of WMDs in Iraq. You got to pick one side or the other because somebody said because somebody told me, hey, I heard there's nobody behind that door. I'm not going to go. Oh, cool. We're not going to clear it then. Like, that's cool. Nobody's in there. How do you know? Oh, somebody said that's not going to. That, that makes no sense. But that's, I think, once these narratives get going, you throw out the caution. Then what happened is the guy, that the, the guy that I had interrogated, he actually was taken off the target. He was not left in place. He came off on one of the later helicopters once we had left. I don't know what happened to him after that, but of course he was interrogated again. And he is the one that said, and here's the story. I mean, the the conspiracy kind of came something like this. The war was not going good. We thought it was going to be really easy. And we had all this combat right off the bat. And they're trying to get this feel good story. So they orchestrated this big uh, uh, theater event where they're going to pretend to rescue her. She was totally fine. Nobody was there. They were using blanks on the target. How do you know there were blanks? They were shooting all these guns. We could see them. They don't look right. They weren't right. But there were no bullet holes in the walls. What were they shooting at? Just to make sense. No, they were shotgun shells from the breachers shooting the doors open. He also had said, I told them that, had fed, that the Fedahin had left, but they kept clearing the building. 
again, like, yeah, I'm sorry, strange foreigner in a country that I've just attacked and I'm not, we're not going to, you know, necessarily take your word on it. Anyway, it got so out of hand. And at first I'm like, yeah, crazy. I mean, there's flat earthers or whatever, you know, I don't think the truthers or those guys had come out yet, but I'd, I'd never seen anything. I'm like, ah, whatever. I mean, who cares? But it got legs or something. Also, there was a very unfortunate thing, you know, and especially now it's kind of cringy where, um, I don't know if a grown man can say cringy, but you know, it was cringe inducing where when she was being moved to Germany, they had a flag, they get her a flag to tell her to hold it. And somebody goes, smile, sweetie. Can you smile for the camera or something very patriarchal and sounded directorial or, well, these are PR people, whatever, you know, it's not a monolith. And I thought that was kind of, I remember thinking, you know, that could have gone better. That seemed a little cheesy. It just kept going and going. And then I got subpoenaed to give sworn congressional testimony to the fact that we did not fake the Jessica Lynch rescue. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. I remember vaguely, and I, I have tried to look and see, and maybe we'll find some news reports from then about that. But how did it get to the point where Congress is now investigating this? Do you remember how I that happened? No, that's a forest question. I'm a tree. All I know is they said, hey, Aaron, put on your khakis. You're going to do a video testimony to some ways in me or house committee of something to tell them what happened. I'm like, I'll tell them what happened. What, what do they want? I mean, they're like, yeah, they want to know whether you fake it was faked or not. And I do remember really tweaking that really, you know, often and in most cases, and I reflect on this often, most often reacting with anger is a sign of weakness in almost all cases. Not every case, and and I'm not sure about this one, but I was so offended by that. I really recall going, like, I'm a fairly patriotic person, you know, and I mean that in the broadest sense. I love America. I love the American experiment. I'm proud of serving the military. I'm proud of the citizens of America and all the stuff we do. I really, temporarily, for about 12 or 14 hours, lost faith in my country because I literally put my right hand up like this and said, do you swear that you did not use blank ammunition during the Jessica Lynch raid or rescue? And I said, I do so swear. You know, the question was, why were there so many people? Because we weren't just rescuing her. We had two full assault forces plus a backup force plus all the Marines coming to take over the building in a city that's not controlled yet in the middle of the night. There's a lot of things moving because we made it, we made a commitment to this mission and those missions, they're not wars of attrition. We're going to win. That is how that goes. That is a JSOC policy. It's failure is not an option, right? Probably heard that before. We don't give it, we're not in the old college try business. We're going to win. And that's, that's the forces we had. We put 100% of into that. You know, we had several hundred armed men running through a building in the middle of the night and nobody got, nobody fucked it up. And we got her out in 15 minutes and she got back to her family and we got the nine bodies back to their people. And I don't mean to sound like a seller. I'm not even complaining. I'm just saying, and all that, what you what you take from that, how about, you know, good job or something. Let's go on to the, and then, by the way, the next day we went to the next mission. And we did yeah, another, another 50, 50 or so, 50 or so missions. And then we came home and then went back to Afghanistan and then went back to Iraq and then went back to Afghanistan and then Iraq. So, you know, F you conspiracy theorists, if you're listening. You know, I've thought about that. I mean, I haven't had that, the experience like that of having, I mean, part of it is, I think part of what, why you, I, anyone would react with anger is after 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 something like that, right? Which is just demonstrably all the things you said that requires that kind of courage and professionalism and competence to then be have all it's all of those things are then questioned. You're doing a thing that's at the top levels of of complexity and courage and and then to be 
accused of it being fake is is offensive on a human level. You know, I've wondered why, you know, I the conspiracy theories around 9-11 activate me so much. I mean, is it just because it's a lie about a thing that killed so many Americans and led to the things that it led to? And sometimes I think it's just, you know, if I, I'm offended on behalf of humankind because, I mean, rationality and truth are hard enough as it is. And to actively undermine those things does seem to gnaw away at the very thin basis that holds all the society together. Asking questions is fine. Having your doubts about things is fine. But like to equate the people that are there with some, like, this is the best aspect of humanity. And here's their story. And here's the worst aspect of humanity. And we give those equal weight. Like, you know, these 50 eyewitnesses at the Pentagon and also this Twitter dude. <laughs> right. Do I really need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on there? Like, why do we weight this dude equivalent to these people? It doesn't make any sense to me. To default to that and to assume that anything that shows the best aspects of a person is the lie and the truth is the underbelly is always this truth that everybody yeah. sucks. And there's this evil cabal of people trying to do all this stuff. It's why that resonates is d very disheartening. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this before. I mean, I think it's, it is complexity and uncertainty are hard and conspiracies are an anecdote to that. If, if you have spent your life, you know, working in environments that that uncertainty is is such a core <laughs> part of you know what you're doing every day and you, i mean you have to make decisions life or death decisions based on 51 percent certainty that going right will not get you killed and 49 percent that going left will get you so but you got to go right and you you have to live in that and live with that uncertainty every day and that's i don't know different than normal life i guess all right well aaron Look, I, you know, I was going to, there were all these other big questions that we've talked about, about all of the worth of it all. And the, and, and we're going to avoid those or save those for next time. But okay. I will say that, that not least is that we've gotten to know each other and our families are healthy and safe and we're getting a chance to work on this cool thing together. And that's yeah. very exciting. And that's good. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate being involved. And thank you very much. And I'll see you next time. Another exciting episode to come. Yeah. Okay. All right. See ya. I'm in. Bye.